to Gradcast on Tour. We're here in San Diego at the Conference of the Society for Neuroscientists, Neuroscience 2018. I'm here with Joyla. Hello. And we're here to talk to Guy Fong. And um, tell us a little bit about where you're from. Um, hi, everyone. I'm from Madison, Wisconsin, in the United States. Um, I study medical physics. I'm a PhD student, um, third year, um, and yeah, I'm excited to be here. I, I wanted to um, see the SFN conference because I, I heard it's huge and a lot of people here, um, a lot of uh, different research people are presenting, so I wanted to learn about the field. It is a huge conference. There's 27,000 people, I think, attending this year, which is quite a big group of people, right? Yeah, and thank you so much for joining us. Um, how are you liking SFN so far? Um, it's it's big. It's uh, a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of walking around between rooms. Um, Impossible to see everything. Uh, yeah, so I only um, grabbed a you know, very small bit of the conference, I feel like, but uh, still it was useful um, seeing other people. I don't really have much neuroscience background. I'm coming from um, a physics, uh, more technical background, so okay. there was a little difference that I had to um, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, get across. So this is your first time at SFN? Yep, it is. Amazing. Mm -hmm. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, um, so I um, I am in medical physics. Uh, so I study MRI. Um, okay. So uh, for my coursework, I studied what goes behind the MRI. So more like technical and also how we how we take images. Um, and right now I'm doing more the image analysis side of MRI. So you know, how do we effectively um, analyze the images coming out of uh, MRI? So I'm involved in two different projects. Um, one is um, temporal uh, epilepsy connectome project, one, the other one is Alzheimer's connectome project. So those connectome projects uh, have, um, we, we take MRI images of the patients and also healthy people to see you know, what, what, what goes on in their brains. Um, so it's, it's been a really good uh, opportunity for me to, to have those um, enormous data samples to uh, work with. So I might have a bit of a naive question, but what exactly is a connectome project? I'm not too familiar with that field. <laughs> right. So I feel like uh, in SFN, in neuroscience, we, we, we get down to really like the cellular level or right, like yeah. The, yeah, neuronal level. Um, I think connectome is like one, one level up. So how those uh, neurons and then brain networks are connected mm -hmm. and just the uh, you know, like taking a step back. So people came up with this, this name connectome to represent um, uh, the brain connections mm -hmm. overall, like the connectivity okay. overall. And so you can see all of that with an MRI? Uh, we, we're getting there. Um, okay. The resolution, we're trying to keep fighting um, with the resolution. Um, but yes, we can, um, you know, get down to like a so we, we talk about structural connectivity um, mm -hmm. or connectome or functional uh, connectivity. So those things we can do with MRI. And why are you looking at these two specific patient groups? Um, so it, it, it all started with um, what, what was known as Human Connectome Project that was mm -hmm. finished a uh, few years ago. Um, that was just looking at healthy young, young brains. Mm -hmm. So now we have a good understanding of the healthy human connectome. So now people are interested in knowing the differences in um, other disease populations. So um, just my school happened to um, host 
two of these projects, but there are other um, disease connectant projects going on um, over the United States. Right. So now looking at those two uh, different patients, patient groups, do you see any differences compared to control brains? Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, Alzheimer's uh, disease patients uh, seem to show a lot of structural um, degradation. So I'm, right. I'm picking up a lot of those. We're still collecting data, so uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm excited to see what, what, what those will pan out. Um, epilepsy patients, you know, it's uh, you know they're they're dealing with seizures, so right. uh, maybe the problem is more in the functional level. So I'm picking up some um, important uh, differences in the, uh, the functional level. Okay. And how is how important is age in this thing? So what what age group are you looking at? Um, so epilepsy, uh, it 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 goes all the way to the to the young population also. So there are also um, uh, you know, people people develop epilepsies when they're young, also, you know, mm-hmm. because of other, uh, other um, variety yeah. of reasons. Yeah. And so we we look at um, age uh, 18 to uh, let me think 16. So it's a really wide range uh, age group. Um, Alzheimer's, as you can imagine, it's more older population. So we go from like 55 to 90 plus. So mm-hmm. you know, as old as we can get. Um, so age is a Factor. Yeah. Seems like a big factor too. So, uh, what did you present actually at your at your poster presentation? What was the data that you uh, that you decided to share with 27,000 people? <laughs> right. So um, that was uh, a long story behind mm-hmm. uh, that, that research. Um, so I, I look at mainly disease populations, but mm-hmm. um, I got into more of the uh, image analysis uh, okay. aspects. So um, I was trying out different in image analysis method, and one one thing I came across is the machine learning, which is um, blooming in this era. Um, and so, and with machine learning, the biggest uh, limitation that we have in medical imaging is sample size. Mm-hmm. And so, even in like our our connectome studies, we're dealing with uh, you know dozens of or up to 100 patients, but it still may not be enough. So I wanted to look at some some data sets that are larger that have more people. Mm-hmm. So um, that drew me into the, the human connectome project I, I mentioned earlier. They recruit uh, 12,000, um, no, 1,200, <laughs> sorry, 1,200 uh, healthy young people. So I, I was looking at that data and I realized that, oh, they have twin data, um, okay. twin brains of uh, data. So I, I wanted to um, just, you know, shortly uh, dig into that, that field. You know, I like, I, I like to... Um, have my options open. I just, I, I, you know, if I have ideas, I like to just mm-hmm. dig into that, even if it's not my main area. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that was a little my, uh, a little bit of my side gig, but there. Mm-hmm. So with with the twin data, I wanted to ask questions about like how the genetics are impacting the human brain. Right. So that was what my poster was about. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And what sort of data did you find? Uh, so I, I realized I, I did more um, holistic uh, review of the, the genetic impact of human brain. So I, I, re- I realized that the visual um, areas of the brain and the auditory, so more of those like sensory networks, are uh, seem to be impacted by uh, the genetics, um, and which so um, and which was uh, when when uh, went well with the previous findings too in the. In the so is this 
fraternal twins that you're looking at? Yeah, so I looked at both. So Shimon's Nesson Products um, actually recruited uh, the all four data types. <clears throat> so so um, I looked at four different groups. So one is the identical twins, um, and the second is the, we call it dizygotic twins, so non-identical twins, and also siblings within the, uh, age differences of three years old, and then uh, strangers. So um, I, I looked at all four d- groups to you know, answer some questions about how genetics are playing a role here. That's really cool. And um, can you just quickly summarize some interesting findings that you saw? Um, so, so that was that was it. Um, more, uh, I, I want to expand this out to more of the genetics versus also like behavior. Mm-hmm. And so, so I realized that when I did literature review, I realized that this um, twin study was a pretty popular, um, you know, a few decades ago, and it didn't really pick up much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I realized that what was lacking a bit was to draw connections between the, the brain features uh, and to the actual behavioral mm-hmm. um, features. So um, actually in connectome studies we do a lot of uh, behavioral testing also. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to expand this to, to that. So I know in schizophrenia research this twin studies is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so did you have a certain disease paradigm that you were matching these these twin studies and sibling studies, or was it just in general? What was whatever was in the human connectome database you just used? Right. Um, so yeah, again, like this was not uh, the main uh, yeah, area yeah. Of research <laughs> I was doing, so right. I didn't really spend much time on it. But I realized that yeah, other other literatures did did this twin study on the schizophrenia population, but no, I only did it on the young patients, young healthy adult population. Okay, cool. And how did you like presenting your poster? Did you get to speak to some cool researchers? Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, there were a lot of people around um, who came by my poster. Um, you know, it's, it's fun interacting with people. I've done uh, oral presentations too, and um, mm-hmm. pr- uh, my professor and I were talking about which, which format is more beneficial for, for the presenter. Um, and yeah, and there, you know, oral presentations are good that you, you get to um, speak in front of people, but poster sessions, I feel like it's more, um, per, it's more one personal. One-on-one. On one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. you get to really get to know them, and so, yeah, I like that about posters. So one thing that I like to ask is, what is one cool thing that you saw at this conference? <laughs> Good question. One cool thing. Uh, <laughs> That's a tough one. There's yeah, it's so, many, yeah. so many things. <laughs> and it's but, overwhelming. So know, what's the one thing that stuck in your mind that you said, okay, this is cool. It doesn't even have to be related to your research. <laughs> right. So, yeah, most of the talks that I hear, um, I, so I just I came here just to check check out what the field of neuroscience is getting, getting at. And right. Yeah, I, you know, I had to... Um, I had to overcome a lot of uh, a lot of jargons and yeah, a lot true. of yeah. It's hard I to also don't understand half of it. <laughs> <laughs> and we're in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was just like one thing really cool I, I remember in neuroscience is that you guys do um, those uh, animal studies. So there are a lot of animal studies. I oh yeah. Tons. Tons. So many. And they're so different. So yeah. different. Everything's different. Yeah. One thing that was cool to me was that you you can actually put like a VR machine on the rat and oh. then look at their brains. So that was in one of the the main lectures. 
Oh my! Even I didn't see that. Yeah. One. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. They, you can have them like um, get around uh, like a maze and like oh, look yeah. at their brains as they like make decisions either to turn left or right. Yeah, um, I've really, seen that really in um, it's something at Western Tube. They have uh, primate research and they put VRs yeah. on the monkeys and they play video <laughs> games. And they, as they navigate. Yeah. 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 But I didn't know they could do it on mouse models or rodents. Or yeah. Pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. I learned something new too. That's yeah. why I asked the question. Maybe, maybe not, I didn't understand that correctly, but like from what she was saying, from what you was, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, did you get to see some of the exhibits? I know there was like 5,000 plus people yeah, here for so, the exhibit. Yeah, so on that, yeah, when, um, my uh, previous conferences, you know, I didn't really um, go to their uh, mm -hmm. sites and I was only focusing on um, attending lectures. Right. But I'm, you know, I'm third year PhD, and I'm trying yeah. to, you know, like I, I need to know the field also, like yeah. the actual jobs opportunities out oh, there. Yeah. So yeah, I did check out the, the vendors. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there are, uh, you know, again, it was more neuroscience focused than I, I wanted to, so I wanted to see more um, like MRI or like right. image analysis yeah. sort of um, mm -hmm. um, site too, but I didn't find any there. Um, but more, it was more like imaging, more like a cellular imaging. Yeah, yeah. Like so yeah, I, I walk around. Yeah. A lot of free stuff at the vendors. That's too. true. Yeah, yeah, I got some souvenirs. Oh yeah. <laughs> and so, when are you heading home then? Uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. It is the last day of the conference, so yeah. winding down a little bit. Yeah. Right. Are you excited to go back? Um, so where I'm from is I'm not yeah really cold. Probably <laughs> <laughs> colder <laughs> there. So yeah, I'm not. So excited to go back to the cold, but yeah, I'm it's been fairly nice this week in terms of weather. Yeah, so. it was so nice mm -hmm. to wear shirts. Oh yeah. Have you been to San Diego before? No, this is first time. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go back. Yeah, so far good experiences. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was a great time talking to you. Um, Short and sweet. Yeah. <laughs> all sure. right. So um, that's all we have for this interview. Thank you for listening. So, Michelle Stone from Cal State San Bernardino, how are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? How are you guys doing? Welcome do yeah. to the United States, California. Thank you very much. We're very much enjoying it. It's a lot better. This is especially uh, special for us, uh, Vicky and uh, myself, Roger, uh, gradcast on tour because the weather here in San Diego is just phenomenal. Uh, this is it about year-round here, sunshine and warm. Very jealous. So how are you enjoying the conference so far? Um, it has been great. I really love Society for Neuroscience Conferences. They're huge. You get a lot of people who get to come out of labs for the first time in a long time uh, to talk about <laughs> things they really love. So it, there's a lot of enthusiasm in the air. Out of the dark yeah. rooms with yeah, no windows. Yeah, the basements within the basements. So are you presenting a poster at yeah. this conference? Um, yeah, this year I will be presenting in uh, the Neural Mechanisms of Cannabinoids section. Mm. Um, a lot of the research I do at Cal State San Bernardino with two wonderful doctors. Doctors, Dr. Crawford um, and Dr. McDougall. Mm -hmm. They are a dynamic duo and they uh, specialize.
specialize in drug abuse and uh, sensitization paradigms with psychostimulants. Um, so I came in there and I said, I want to do cannabis studies. <laughs> this is a drug lab, right? <laughs> and they hadn't been, they were no, specifically focused uh, on Usually, stimulants. Uh, yeah, stimulants, amphetamines, cocaine, heroin studies as well, but okay. no, can there was a few cannabinoid studies, um, but it's all new to them. So we were kind of entering this new realm together using their sensitization model, which is a, a model um, that allows us to look at animal behavior to look at drug craving um, and drug seeking behavior. So hmm. uh, changes in locomotor activity after a drug has been given um, and then you give a period of abstinence and or with you know um, where you have no drug and then when you reintroduce that drug you get changes in locomotor activity you get this increase in behavior um, and this can what they believe is um, a cause for drug seeking behavior or continued drug use is because you're getting this altered neural sensitization that causes you to like the drug more so what exactly is sensitization? I so think. it can be seen both neurally and behaviorally. So okay. what we're seeing is just think of the word sensitive, right? So when someone touches you and you're sensitive, you're going to have a heightened response. So what we see is a heightened behavioral response. Okay. And we see changes or heightened or sensitized neural activity in which that the drug is playing a role in how um, you are responding both physically and neurochemically to what's going on when you're introduced to that drug, um, so addiction. And cannabis is a really hot topic, yes. not only in Canada right now because it just got legalized, um, but also here at SFN, so there are a lot mm -hmm. of drug um, drug studies and psychoactive um, Yeah, pharmacology. Studies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, it's been cool this year at SFN, I think there's a lot more cannabis and cannabinoid studies um, coming out over the years than we saw sure. you know, a long time ago, and it is a hot topic. Um, in the United States, there's been the decriminalization of cannabis use by states, um, so that also changes a lot of it. And you know, my poster here is mainly focused on adolescent use, and that's a huge thing that comes along with decriminalization. Is it's introduced in culture, so now you have this young group of 15-year-old kids that think it's okay to smoke pot. Um, right. And what we know about users that start smoking pot around this age or before the age of 15 is they tend to suffer more long-term consequences than anybody else that uses pot in adulthood. Um, so something about this population, here's that word again, makes them sensitive mm -hmm. um, to cannabis and cannabis use. And so a user that starts before the age of 15 is also more likely to become a chronic user mm -hmm. and continue using throughout life. Um, so that's what kind of led us to this idea of let's see what is going on. Is there a sensitized response in adolescence to cannabis? Because then that helps us understand how it's going to affect our young population with all these changes in laws and what we can do to prevent them from, you know, um, using more. Wow. So, so how do you uh, gauge the sensitization uh, within adolescents or you know, mm -hmm. teens versus adults? And so um, we use that. animals. So it's okay. an animals. It's an animal model, and uh, you use a pretty much a laser beam box, and it's just a little bit you know open field, and it has a laser beam, and you're measuring uh, what is called a stereotopic like behavior, so sniffing, scratching, jumping, moving, and okay. then just distance traveled, so locomotor response. Um, so when you give a drug, you're going to see changes in locomotor response. You know, they're dealing with the reward factor. The Usually with stimulants, you're just getting a stimulated response. There's a changes. dopamine system that's exactly, been activated. Exactly. The sure. whole reward pathway yep. is going to be activated at that point. Um, 
So this paradigm allows you to measure changes in behavior. So what happens is, is they're gonna respond to the drug in a certain way, and then if you take away the drug for a few days and reintroduce it, that response should amplify. And hmm. that amplification is the sensitization. So you gave them the drug and they had a bigger, a greater response than they did initially. They liked it more, they wanted it at that point. So, so for example, if you were to take one animal that has never been exposed to the drug before and give them a dose of, of the cannabis mm -hmm. or whatever mm -hmm. drug you're giving them and then take another animal that was given several doses of that drug but then mm -hmm. they were you know left to be abstinent for yes. a little while you give them that same dose and they're going to show a much larger more potent response than the animal that never got it at all exactly that seems exactly. kind of counterintuitive doesn't it because typically somebody who uses drugs for the first time you know you, that virgin high as yes, they say right but you're chasing the dragon chasing the dragon right and that's the tolerance to it but uh, that doesn't mean you physically aren't craving the drug. You can look at a heroin addict that's filling a needle and they're already having increases in responses. Uh, it's not the drug itself that's causing it, it's the idea of taking the drug. Yeah. So the idea of being away from it for a period of time and then getting it again, you're sensitized, you're even more excited, you, you're, you have that expectation. That's why you never get that original high, you're always chasing the dragon because wow. it's never as good as the first time. But that doesn't mean you're not responding to taking it more. And that's one of the things we see with psychostimulants with addiction is this idea is you become sensitized to taking this drug. So when you take it away, there's this huge relapse fast factor because when you get it back, you're just so excited. <laughs> so I have a question about that. So if we take people who are addicts to anything, it doesn't mm -hmm. really matter, and you keep them away for a while, they either go to rehab or right. you know they, they say they're drug free at that point. So is there a certain amount of time that they can be abstinent where they can have that initial high again? Or is it, or will they always be sensitized? <laughs> like to be funny, they're always going to chase the dragon. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but with animal models, we mm -hmm. see that the neural sensitization is very long term. So okay. you can take the drug away from an animal for, for months mm -hmm. and then reintroduce it at a different dose even and still see a sensitized response. This is oh. mainly with psychostimulants. Mm -hmm. um, so psychostimulants tend to have, you know, energetic responses, more of an addiction principle than cannabis. Right. So you don't see a lot of sensitization models that study cannabinoids mm. because you tend to not get this sensitized response. But then if we're not getting a sensitized response, how could cannabis be the one that's leading us into other drug use? How could 15-year-olds all of a sudden become chronic users if they're not getting some kind of sensitized response from this drug? So this idea um, that we wanted to look at is just consistent dosing. So a lot of younger kids that are getting into pot, you know, they smoke infrequently um, sure. and not at large doses. Mm -hmm. And it could be escalating, but a lot of the time it's about the same. They're their money runs about the same so they can get the same amount of drug. Fair enough, okay, that makes um, sense. Right. Yeah. Um, what you do also see is that there's four groups of users. You have your consistent users at a low dose, you have your consistent users at a high dose, you have these intermittent users that use it like parties, social functions, and then you have your dose escalating group. Mm -hmm. So your group that becomes addicted essentially and they continue to increase their dose with each drug use chasing the dragon. 
Um, so a lot of drug abuse paradigms are focused on groups that tend to escalate, binge users. Um, however, with cannabis, I think it's a very unique drug um, because it's become more medicinally used. And a lot of people who use it medicinally find what we call bliss point, in which they pick one dose that tends to work frequently for a long period of time before they have to change that dose. Sometimes they go up and sometimes they go down. Hmm. Um, do you agree? Yeah, so to me, that group of users is most important because these 15 year old kids whose maybe parents are experimenting with cannabis to deal with, you know, seizures or um, right. Tourette's or other, you know, things. Obviously, it's decriminalized and it's not legal for them to do this. It doesn't mean kids aren't doing this themselves. And, you know, this isn't an issue that America has been facing. So it was important to me to see if there's this sensitized response going on mm -hmm. with consistent dosing. Mm -hmm. um, so we found that if we gave the animal can cannabinoids for five days at a consistent dose, um, we had three doses. We had what's considered a low dose, uh, an average medium dose, and a high dose. Um, and then we took the you know the can the cannabinoid away for a 48-hour period, and then reintroduced it um, at a bit of a higher dose. Mm -hmm. So we still escalated those a little bit on the test day, just just to ensure you know. That's that sensitization could occur. Okay. Um, and however, what was interesting is we did not find a sensitized response. So it didn't matter if you gave a medium, low, or high dose of um, cannabinoids and took it away for those days. They had no change in behavior to animals that were treated with saline during that same period of five days and then given cannabinoids that one time on the test day. But what kind of cannabinoid are you um, It was a, the CP55940 cannabinoid agonist. Fair enough. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Yeah, it was a mouthful and I always switch those numbers around. Um, but it is a full synthetic agonist of the CB1 receptor. Um, so. It's going to definitely have the rewarding properties you get with the partial agonist like THC. Fair enough. Yeah, the same general mechanism of action working on the CB1 receptor exactly. in an agonistic exactly. sort of yeah. way. So you mentioned that, that you look at this both in adolescence and then you compare this to adulthood? Um, not in this particular study. That would okay. be the next realm. Uh, so the idea, future the future steps. is gotcha. because we, we base this off the literature showing that this age group is very sensitive to cannabis. And we wanted to see and look at this adolescent group to see if there was any kind of neural correlation or any kind of neural sensitization seen through behavior that might lead us to understand this gateway theory of cannabis use that would, you know, maybe help solidify that if we're seeing changes in this craving drug seeking response after a drug is given, then it would make sense that experimenting with cannabis is going to lead for you to chase that dragon hmm. because you've sensitized that system. However, we're not seeing that sensitivity that you would if you tried cocaine. Um, so does that kind of speak against the gateway theory then? Like, in, what would you speak yes, to? Yes, I mean, it's it's hard to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> it speaks against it. Cannabis is not bad Believe for you. Believe my researchers. <laughs> but it does lead to the fact that uh, cannabis does not work like other drugs of abuse and it's very very important as it continues to be legalized in other countries and decriminalized in the state um, that we need to understand it better to avoid addiction and deal with cannabis abuse syndromes and understand what exactly cannabis is doing that's causing some groups to increase their doses and some groups to become chronic users and sensitized um, and especially in this very vulnerable adolescent population. So you're saying that the adolescent 
adolescent population is very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Do you see those same four groups that you mentioned earlier in the adult ages as well? Or is it mostly within the adolescent group that you see a higher amount going towards that higher, um, that higher I guess, dosage of cannabis. I, I, I don't have the research mm -hmm. saying. The research mm -hmm. that I was looking at was particularly looking at high school reports. I see. Um, okay. So, you know, we get to do a lot of reports on our high mm -hmm. school kids and they get to tell us what we use. Um, so I don't really have much on the adult yeah. population usage as we do on right. that specific age group. I can enlighten that. Um, a lot of the research that says this population is sensitive, mm -hmm. a lot of the clinical research is showing that the sensitivity for further drug use is not coming from cannabis, but coming from other things um, such okay. as like economic status, um, right. you know, other social influences, and that may actually be more connected to the gateway theory. It's very important then to see if that acceptance mm -hmm. and trying this softer drug is really going to have some kind of long-term consequence on your behavioral response to other drugs because then that's the key mm. to you know m making sure kids know that you know that right. it might be a soft drug but that doesn't mean that it's not a drug but again mm. we only see it in certain situations yes. so it's it's <laughs> very confusing <laughs> oh yeah so i think the next step would be to do a comparison study mm -hmm. of both of those groups and then do neural correlations right. you know slicing maybe some assays and look at different receptor development and see why there's differences in that mm -hmm. sensitization and maybe there is a response both behaviorally and neurochemically to explain it. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's a mouthful. It is a mouthful, yeah. but your research is, I think you just defended. Is that what you yes, said as well? I just Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations. Um, the project sounds very good. It's, there's a lot of work that has been done, and it, it looks like there still needs to be more work mm -hmm. that needs to be done, but we're getting there, mm -hmm. both uh, in a social way as well as in research. Um, so is there any way that we can contact you more about your research if uh, someone were to uh, inquire? You can look up Dr. Sanders McDougall or Dr. Okay. Cynthia Crawford in PubMed and they have some really amazing work on sensitization and drug abuse. So Awesome. Cutting-edge research and clearly at a really uh, <laughs> important time. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for your time being here speaking with us and uh, please enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you guys. Thank Amazing. You. <laughs> Take care. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.